0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include. Knights Black Agents Con Runs, Tom Thompson, Chicago and Toronto Nerd Highlights, and Moses versus Jacobs. When we're not talking about stuff, odds are good that we're making games. Game Playwright Press and Atlas Games think making games is awesome too. That's why they're kickstarting The White Box, a game design workshop in a box. The White Box is a book, huh, of essays by game design professor Jeremy Holcomb.
1: Plus, here's where the box part comes in, a boatload of wooden bits plastic discs, and punchboard tokens.
0: It's the perfect catalyst to get the game design that's stuck in your head out of there and onto the tabletop.
1: It'll fulfill in October, so it's a great holiday gift for aspiring game designers, creative young people, and that inveterate house ruler in your board game group. The
0: White Box Kickstarter is going on now. Search Kickstarter for The White Box. Or visit atlas-games.com slash The White Box. Plus the traditional link in the show notes, making games is rad. Back the
1: white box now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the tantalizing aroma of takeout, and the iPad set up on the keyboard to function as a GM screen tell us that we've once more entered the ultra modern, ultra swank confines of the gaming hut. And in keeping with the fact that this is not just an all-request episode, but our second consecutive ultra-request episode, or not just an ultra-request, well, they're all ultra-requests, Some or there's a mega-request. But anyway, this is our second episode in a row where we're uh, using all questions from our delightful Patreon backers. And the first of those uh, delightful backers is Ray Slikinski, who has a Ken-shaped question that goes something like this. With Gen Con coming up, I would love some advice on running Knights Black Agents at a con. With a four-hour time slot, how do you step on the gas or ease on the brakes to wrap up in time and tell a good story? And uh, I guess so that uh, I have a few things to say in this segment instead of just uh, nodding my head sagely while, uh, while you talk, Ken. I guess we can start by reviewing some of the basic things that you do to run any successful con game. So I'll throw in to begin with, which is that A uh, fun con game is not about teaching the rules. It's about giving the players a great experience. So just use as much of the rules as you need to, to tell your story and don't spend a lot of time explaining how they work. Ken, do you have (laughs) any other uh, bits of of general advice?
0: Uh, General advice on running any con game is to go to the published adventure, if you're running it, or your designed adventure, if you're running that, and start cutting things from the front. Take out the first act, if you can. Uh, Take out the first two acts if you can. You want to start as close to the actual action as possible because you've only got four hours. Uh, If you feel like there absolutely has to be a period of planning and discussion, make sure – that you very, very, very tightly control the timing on it, ideally by having some sort of Blackhawk helicopter start shooting missiles at the players if they do too much of it. Or some uh sort of unmistakable signal that the time for planning is over and the time for action has begun, and that can be an internal uh clock where you say, well, it's just about uh midnight, you're going to run out of nighttime if you don't move now or just about sunset, you're going to move, run out of daytime if you're fighting vampires or you can have, you know, a bomb go off or the cops show up or whatever it is, but you need to keep the normally languorous investigative planning portion of a scenario like this uh, tight and contained while still being fun. And that is on you then to provide lots of possible clues and lots of possible tactical options and provide them organically during play. And ideally, that should come about by talking to NPCs and whatnot. But if it if you can't handle that, make it a data dump and get to the fight, because that is what the people signed up for.
1: Right, because a published scenario in particular will start off with hey, here's a whole bunch of different ways for the players to decide that they're engaging with this premise. And uh, in a con run, they have already engaged with this premise. Something is already happening. You've decided for them what that is. And people, uh, you know, you might get some a grumbler perhaps, but in general, people are there to get started. And so uh, don't be afraid to uh, get started. And I guess that also, uh, the uh, parallel to that is, if you are writing this hypothetical convention scenario, start in MIDI res, start while something is happening, and then, uh, you know, later they can get some breathing space and all uh, uh, talk to each other uh, and, uh, and so on. So uh, I guess we're now moving... Uh, to, uh, the Knights Black Agents part of this. This, of course, is your spies on the run from, uh, High Placed Vampires investigative thriller game from Pelagrain Press. Well, let's say that you're, uh, writing a scenario or sketching out the bones of a scenario that you will improvise. Uh, are there special recommendations that you, uh, have for that other than, uh, start with, uh, action?
0: I would say for a con event, you want to show off what makes Knights Black Agents. Super cool. And that is two things. One, you're fighting vampires. So make sure that the con is, the game is about fighting a vampire of some sort. Uh, it doesn't have to be the vampire from your campaign or it doesn't have to be the vampire from, from the book if you don't want it to be. Although that would be a great way to speed it along uh, in terms of your design time. But make sure that a vampire or something recognizably vampiric and awful shows up in the scenario and is vampiric and awful. You, you don't want a con game to be the, well, I, we've killed the whole Hungarian trade delegation. We assume many of them were vampires type episode. You want it to be a real, you know, blood and fangs type story that shows off that part. Right.
1: If you don't want it to be the change of pace episode that you would have no. in the, in part of a long campaign. Uh, if this is about, this is Night Black's agents, but it's not about spies or vampires. This is about uh, hanging out at a lake. Exactly. You don't want that.
0: Right. No, you don't want the um, uh, the downtime episode where we all learn uh, people's backstory.
1: Or this is the one where you fight the aliens. Y- you don't want that either, because that's not what people expect when they sign up. It's for not what they project. signed up
0: for. Yeah. Or even you know where you fight the FSB. Although you might fight the FSB on the way to vampires, or discover that the FSB is in league with the vampires as a result of a unrealistically rapid investigation.
1: Right. So have vampires in it. Have vampires. Point one.
0: The other thing is be prepped. Uh, with the player characters that you're the pre-gens that you're going to hand out, make sure that the character sheets have written on them the various cherries that their abilities get them and the superpowers, uh, the sort of Jason Bourne powers that, uh, Knights Black Agent's agent has so that they can feel like Jason Bourne. And in, and in, and in those sorts of cases, I would recommend beginning with a fight against some scrubs, uh, possibly including one Renfield. To indicate, oh, there is a bigger story going on, but they need to feel competent going in and then terrified coming out. That's the goal for that sort of convention story arc. And if they beat the vampire by the skin of their teeth or by the skin of its teeth, and maybe a couple of them die, it doesn't matter because it's a con game. And uh, make sure that that arc starts with danger that they can get through, leading it to rapid information gathering or planning and then into the big showdown. And I would say having more than three elements to that arc is pushing it in a four hour session, especially if you have to stop and explain the rules every so often. Um, if you want to, you know, put in the exciting chase mechanics, that's another thing that NBA shows off, but know that that should replace one of those three parts of the arc. And since nothing should replace the big fight with the vampires, it should either replace the investigation, uh, and planning part, or should it should replace the opening fight and turn the opening fight into a fight on a chase. If you're good enough at handling the NBA rules to be able to run a fight during a chase, then go ahead.
1: So you've uh, got your scenario, you've uh, got your slot, you sit down, your uh, players arrive, and uh, you're obviously you hand out the uh, character sheets. Uh, what do you tell them? I guess, first of all, you ask them if they're all familiar with Knight's Black Agents. If they all are, that's a luxury. Mm -hmm. Uh, But chances are... can ask
0: them if they're all familiar with Gumshoe. Also, if they are, still a luxury, though a slightly less luxe luxury.
1: Right. Uh, But uh, at all but the very biggest uh, conventions, and even then maybe not, uh, you're probably going to have uh, some players who are unfamiliar with the game and uh, signed up because your description seemed cool or because the timing worked out.
0: Or and because so they how, wanted to play it and have heard about it, but uh, on area podcast, podcasts. Per, uh, right.
1: Well, if in that case, they may already know uh, what it is. But how do you quickly uh, explain the game to uh, the person who's just uh, shown up on a whim?
0: Uh, to the whim shower, my general go-to is uh, Jason Bourne versus Dracula. Or if the person looks like the sort of person who has seen the Jason Bourne movies, you say the Jason Bourne trilogy, if Treadstone was vampires. And that almost always paints... A good enough picture. I have very seldom had one of those two pitches not land in the sense of people get it. Now, they don't always say, I must own this and make it a part of my life because we live in a fallen world. But I think that that sort of twigs people to the sort of pace of play that is expected to the competence of their characters, which is assumed and to the fact that, oh, right, there are vampires here.
1: So you've got your uh, big start. Um, and are there any particular things that uh, GMs need to keep in mind as they're uh, having their big, exciting in media res
0: opening? The main thing you need to keep in mind is make sure that, uh, and a lot of this is your pre-prep, uh, is make sure that your pre-gens all are valuable in all three segments of your story and make sure that the threat is uh, interesting, even if it is not Supernatural yet. A bunch of guys with machine guns is interesting, but a bunch of guys with machine guns coming in on repelling wires or on a helicopter or in some other way is more interesting. So think of a way to make that opener more interesting and then run the fight and then allow refreshes after they've gotten through that fight. You know, do either a abbreviated haven sequence or say, you know, it's the next day. Here are your refreshes. Refresh all of your various uh, abilities and that will tell people, oh, here's the point economy, we can spend during an action scene uh, uh, without having to hoard it for the whole scenario. Because again, part of what makes the game fun is doing all the cool stuff and the fuel for the cool stuff is your pools of points.
1: So you've had your big beginning and now presumably there's a a point where you want to let it breathe a bit more and let the players interact with each other in sort of a a non-fighty set of circumstance. Is there Uh, Anything in particular that you want to have happen during this uh, sort of bit of player-driven connective tissue that leads them to the the next set piece?
0: This is where you feed clues, or you feed information, or you feed uh, convenient NPCs who can provide clues and information. This is where uh, you set up the lead-in to the final fight so that it seems organic and emerges from this sequence. And this is this is tougher in in some ways in a con game because again you've got to make a convincing funnel that leads them to the the final um uh, confrontation but they still have to believe that their characters have organically arrived at it as opposed to well we i guess we just somehow magically find the map to vampires and go follow it there has to be some sense of verisimilitude even if it's relatively thin again, the, 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 narrative chains or the deductive chains in the born movies don't make a ton of sense, but you have to provide something that they can uh figure out during the, the resty part while they're talking around. And the other thing about that is that by knowing certain informational beats, you can time out how much time you are spending and you're like, Oh, well, we've spent a little time, time to drop another information beat on them. And that can be your, uh, your, your, your spiders that you send sent out into the web, come back with information about this, or you get a, a satellite phone call from a, a burned agent that you knew previously. And he's like, ah, oh, I have to warn you, the vampires, they're in Kishinev. Ah, I'm dying. And then it's like, oh, well, there we go. Um, that's, I think maybe the last, uh, resort is to have the dying satellite phone message, but keep it in your, keep it in your hip pocket. If you need to move them into Kishinev, uh, before the, uh, before the uh, hour and a half mark, rather the hour and a half left mark uh hits, because you want to make sure that they feel like they can tactically plan before they bust into the final fight. And uh because again, that's part of what makes the Jason Bourne character, A, capable of fighting a vampire, and B, more fun and more interesting than just, you know, sort of barreling in. So you want to provide a little bit of room for tactical planning in addition to the strategic planning that gets you to the final gunfight. Just Keep uh, an eye on the time is the main thing.
1: Now, in a standard gumshoe scenario, it is important to make sure that there's more than one way to connect up all the scenes and get to the final uh, mystery, or in this case, the final action sequence. Is that as important in convention play, or do you want to sort of uh, set uh, worries about linearity aside and just keep moving them through, and so giving them uh, clearer clues where there's less discussion required as to do we look into clue A or look into clue B? There's just clue A.
0: The first priority in any convention game is providing a complete fun experience in that time slot. And if you feel either good enough at running, uh, improv or good enough at, uh, providing, um, the illusion of choice, then go ahead and offer other potential ways in so that you can go around the table to the four or five people and say, what is, you know, agent, um, uh, uh Annabelle do. What is agent, uh, Bernard do. What does agent Claris do. What does agent, uh, uh, Danica do. And then they will figure out, um, Oh, I'm going to use my blah, blah. And you, up oh, by an odd coincidence, you using your blah, blah is exactly the clue that we needed to get you to Kishinev for that big vampire fight. And if you think you can handle that, uh the core like with any like with gumshoe design uh, even in the slow version really knowing what the final mystery is and what would logically result from that if it's a crime or lead to it if it's a confrontation then you can just by intuition in some cases say oh they're using that ability that uh ability would connect to this trail or this echo and there you go put them together and that puts them onto the, the final confrontation. Um, other cases, you may not feel as confident and you may have, nope, we're going to have to talk to the police inspector. We're going to have to get that satellite phone call. We're going to have to uncover the, the information on the web. And that's just how it's going to have to happen. And I just have to make sure that, uh, those get in, uh, to the scenario. Uh, and, and that's going to just depend on your felt capacity for handling improv based on player action. I think that it's super rewarding to teach yourself that because it comes in handy literally in anything else you're going to run. But if you don't feel comfortable enough with NBA or you don't feel comfortable enough at a con to do it, uh, just have the, the, the pre clues stacked and ready to go. But if you can give the illusion of choice, that's, that's what we're all here for. Right.
1: Right. And so that illusion of choice leads to the aforementioned final confrontation and any uh, tips for running that?
0: Uh, well, the good thing about a con game is you do not have to hold back. And right now, I'm sure that I have many we have many listeners, especially in the o s r saying holding back is for losers and lames, but <laughs> some people hold back just because they prefer character continuity to immediate terror. Well, the great thing in a con game is character continuity is out the window, so go for immediate terror and uh you can you can absolutely bring it uh- sp- certainly if people have gotten three hours of play, they don't mind so much being torn to shreds by a vampire. In the final fight, they, it's a badge of honor in many cases. And so, uh, you can really unleash the, the deadliness. And I would argue that a con game is the perfect time to unleash super deadliness, uh, and, uh, and have a really good blood soaked visceral fight. And the answer in a con, in the final fight in a con game is if nothing horrible has happened for the last couple of minutes, add something else horrible. And that can be an, undiscovered new vampire power. It can be an elder vampire that this vampire was guarding whose crypt door pops open and then he starts his skeletal rotting arms come pouring out. Whatever it is, just a sea of rats, FSB guys, something to just keep amping up the scene where the players are like, oh my, we thought we knew how bad this was, but it was much worse. And that is the feeling you want out of horror and it's the feeling you want, I think, at a good con game because it gets everyone's adrenaline up and then they gum out uh, Whether they won or lost, they came out really jazzed up because they were super excited and uh, super, uh, at least in-game, terrified. And maybe, really, which would be nice.
1: Right. And they, they've signed up for something other than uh D&D, so they're not necessarily expecting to be able to kill the dragon at the end. Do you also build in some way for them to have a victory, even though they all die, some way of portraying the... Uh, the results of their heroic sacrifice in your back pocket?
0: Well, I mean, the good thing about modern day gaming is that people can have plastique and uh, incendiaries in their back pocket, literally. And there's always someone who says, okay, I'm burning all of my demolition points. I'm setting off the C4. I'm taking this nest of vampires with me. And that is, that's a great victory. You don't have to explain that, you know, the conspiracy shows up and starts sifting the ashes or that the vampire organic material comes together in a slurry. You don't have to mention that unless you feel like these are the kind of players who like that horror movie ends with a question mark and the monster's arm coming up out of the grave type ending. If they are on, on board with that sort of absence of closure closure, great. If not, You know, a a bombed out chunk of rubble is a great gravestone for everybody concerned.
1: Uh, Well, as soon as you have uh, Carrie's hand coming up through the lawn to uh, grab at uh, Amy Irving, uh, we've proven that uh, the segment is over and it's time to sashay through uh, this exciting commercial into our next segment.
0: kids want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group
1: want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role playing hobby gumshoe one-to-one
0: has come to your rescue find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws in the first gumshoe one-to-one book Cthulhu confidential combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos
1: complete with three dauntless investigators each ready to play in seconds
0: scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey Sating journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond Presenting three terrifying settings Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory
1: unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one to one play.
0: Full support for creating your own one to one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. The band playing O Canada on the gazebo in the distance. The red and white bunting. No blue. What? This bunting. It seems so odd but peaceful and kind tells you we're in a northerly segment of the history hut and hanging on the walls of the history hut are a number of intriguingly almost focused canvases by iconic Canadian painter, Tom Thompson, because Patry and backer Andy Young has asked us if there is a mythos connection in the mysterious disappearance of iconic Canadian painter, Tom Thompson, which is handy because we already hung those paintings right there on the hut walls. It would have been bad if it had been a disappearance of a different iconic Canadian painter. And
1: boy, did this drive up the, the insurance price on the history hut, having all of these well, prices that, that's, Tom Thompson's that's what on the wall. Well,
0: having a time machine does. You get to sneak back and buy them cheap. Right. There are two Tom Thompson paintings, by the way, that have never been found. Something I found out when I was researching this piece. Yeah. He did 44 pieces. They hung 40 of them in the big Tom Thompson exhibit that sort of remade his wrap. And the publicity of that, let them find two more, but there are two missing Tom Thompson pieces. So, Canadian GMs running art theft games. First of all, God bless you. But second of all, there you go. That's from me to you.
1: Now, uh, if only Canadians listened to this podcast, we could just go on from, hey, Tom Thompson to uh, the Mythos Connections. But look right. some some actual history is in order in our History Hut. So, Ooh. Tom Thompson was sort of the inspirational figure... Who then uh, inspired a group of uh, other fellow like-minded artists to form the Group of Seven, and so he's sort of the the Sid Barrett, if you will, of the Group of Seven. This sort there of you mis- go. mysterious romantic figure who uh, is taken out of the picture early without the brain damage. Well, he was found with a sphere gash on his head, so yeah, he may have had <laughs> fatal—that's <laughs> true—permanent b- b- brain damage. Um, so, as you suggest, uh, so these are sort of the the iconic. Uh, early Canadian painters, not the earliest Canadian painters, but they're the the ones who sort of took the late Impressionist style and applied it to the Canadian landscape. And so uh, if you're going to uh, paint uh, from life outdoors in the uh, Canadian wilderness, that means going on camping trips. And uh group of seven includes a bunch of other uh, painters. I won't list them all now. You can look them up. But some of the prominent names are Lauren Harris, who just got a big retrospective in the U.S. that Steve Martin, who's a major collection, collector of uh, Lauren Harris, arranged, A.Y. Jackson, J.H. H. McDonald. And so they are images of the Canadian wilderness uh, painted in various different styles and they diverged from one another uh, as they uh, painted and each became very distinctive. But this romantic figure of Tom Thompson, who died relatively young, actually at the age of 39, in the wilderness wall painting, he was in uh, Algonquin Park, which is the oldest and biggest provincial park uh, in Ontario. It's about 3,000 square miles, and it's about a three-hour drive from me uh, here in Toronto. And uh, it is sort of a place of uh, even then was a place of pristine wilderness, and uh, and now in comparison to the rest of Ontario, even more pristine. Uh, But anyway, uh, Tom Thompson regularly went there. He was a big camper, and uh, on uh, July 8th, 1917, uh, he disappeared on Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park. And there's a bit of a Berenstain Bears phenomenon there where people talk about the mysterious disappearance of Tom Thompson as if he just vanished. But he didn't vanish. His body washed up uh, on the shores of uh, uh, Canoe Lake and was found eight days later. So he didn't really vanish. He, Not Ambrose Bierce here. Yeah, he he drowned. Yeah. Um, or, or, or did he? Or did he? Uh, because there was a gash on his head and there was fishing wire wrapped around his left ankle and ankle. And there was supposedly no water in his lungs, but I'm going to lean on the word supposedly there because this is one of those mysteries. that became more mysterious as generations went by.
0: According to the documents, there's a great uh, website called Canadian that has a gigantic Tom Thompson obsessive bunch of documents. And a lot of them are the period documents from the era. And apparently the medical examiner didn't examine the body because people get pulled out of lakes all the time. And it was just a matter of, oh, well fell in and drowned. He didn't, he didn't feel like he needed to go running around in the body to find out the cause of death because look at him. He came out of a lake with a bump on his head. He obviously drowned case over.
1: Right. And retrospectively though, there have been numerous other theories other than accident as to what happened to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, that he uh, got into a a fight uh, with uh, some other campers. Uh, Another, that he uh, was having an affair with a woman whose uh, German husband then killed him. Or that he was despondent over the uh, loss uh, of uh, this uh, woman that he was in love with. Or, and committed suicide. And so there's all sorts of other possible explanations that people have uh, put forward over the years. And like a lot of Fortiana, uh, odd stories start to creep in at the margins. So, for example, if you look at the Wikipedia page about Thompson, there's this indication that the, uh, the writer of the Tom Thompson mystery, which is a 1970 book, uh, which really sort of ramped up the, the whole mythology around uh, the death of Tom Thompson. Uh, there's a story in there about that the author claims to have exhumed Thompson's body in 56, but that seems to be a conflation with the fact that the, uh, Thompson's brother at the
0: time had the body moved nearer to the family. And Uh, no, um, according to the Regina leader post or Regina leader post, little has a photograph of him and some buddies out at the body, digging it up. And he said, you know, he dug it up. So he may have been crazy uh, because he's out digging people up, and the, the, he did wind up with some bones that got turned over to a forensic pathologist for examination that he said came out of Thompson's grave and they turned out to be the bones of an Indian, uh, according to that forensic pathologist. But then a later guy argues with that guy. Um, I think it's far more likely, as you suggest, that the fact that Thompson was dug up and buried in his hometown is uh, uh I'm, I'm not sure what sort of thing dr little was trying to prove but i think it's pretty clear that little at least thinks he dug up thompson's grave and, or his original grave of, by the shore of the lake right. and found bones we know that they found bones because the records are still there and that those bones according to those records are the bones of an indian not the bones of tom thompson but since tom thompson's body was supposed to have been moved i don't know what little thought he was proving but i do think little was out on a fun weekend digging people up because he seems crazy
1: right and there's already a fourteen angle to this because uh, Tom Thompson's ghost has been uh, cited by numerous witnesses over the years. Uh, at least one of them saw him twice. He's seen gliding across Canoe Lake in his canoe uh, as a spectral figure, uh, presumably uh, highlighted by the by the cry of the loon, which is the uh, Canadian whippoorwill. And uh, not that the loon is literally a Canadian whippoorwill, but that it's our are, are equivalent of the haunting noise uh, associated with the wilderness. So then the question becomes: uh, What is the uh, the mythos connection? Uh, so can I guess? Uh, do we want to dispense with the obvious hacky mythos connection before we move on to you a better the one? notion
0: that it's Wendigo? Yeah, yeah.
1: Because just because it's Canada doesn't mean that you know everything's a Wendigo.
0: No, no, that's that's racist. Um, yeah. Also, uh, barring the fishing line thing, there was nothing wrong with his feet, so he doesn't fit the the pattern for Wendigo kidnapping at all. And it was summer. Doesn't seem like Wendigo time. It's July. You know, maybe there's a Wendigo cult involved. Maybe the Wendigos are somehow behind all the burying and reburying, but I don't think so. I think there's something else going on.
1: Right. And I'm gonna, uh, I have two theories. All right. The first of my theories is that this is a me-go situation. Um, Right. And we, we know this because later on the Algonquin Park became home to the Algonquin Radio Telescope uh, which is used in SETI research. And so obviously uh, the Canadian equivalent of the Armitage group um, afterwards got together to set up a listening post to alert them uh, for the return of the MIGO. And I've always uh, associated the MIGO somehow with uh, with Northern Ontario, perhaps because I was reading The Whisperer in Darkness while I was uh, up at the uh, Muskoka uh, farm that my grandparents uh, kept even after they, they retired from farming. And so, uh, I just think there's something about conifers and the Canadian shield that suggests that it's the sort of place that the uh, Migo feel free to crawl around with their fungal c- claws. And uh, so if they uh, they obviously would have noted the great uh, creative resonance uh, surrounding Tom Thompson and they uh, probably took a reading and went, uh, this person arts. What is human art? Let us put his brain in a jar and find out. And that's, uh, you know, that's where the gash on the head because the, they is it.
0: they trephenate because um the bo- the body that they dug up, the possibly Indian body, had signs of trephanation. So if they've been trepanning people before, they do it again.
1: Uh, I would not put that past the, the me go at all. No. Nope. Um another thing that's notable about Algonquin Park is it is home of the koi wolves. I don't know if I'd mentioned this before. We did. We
0: talked about the koi wolves before. The coyote wolf crossbreeds.
1: Right. So briefly speaking, this is the only place normally wolves kill coyotes. Uh, but here, they get down with them or got started getting down with them uh, uh, shortly, I guess in the 30s, so, uh, you know, about a generation after uh, Thompson's death. So this may have been, you know, a, an effect of uh, Thompson's ghost or whatever, encouraging the wolves and, and coyotes to be friends.
0: Or that maybe indicates that either the Migo are engaged in genetic experimentation on more than just people. Indeed. Or yes. that there is a Shubnagurath connection, because, of course, if you're out. Canoeing around the wilderness, painting a bunch of trees, and you don't run into the Wendigo, you do run into Shubnigurath because that's who's out there physically as the wilderness and bunch of trees, right?
1: Yeah, we we don't normally think of uh, Shubnigurath as uh, coniferous, but uh, you know, in any tree will do in a pinch.
0: Exactly, and I'm sure there's deciduous trees around there because uh, yeah, I look sure. I look at those paintings. There's like leafs and such.
1: Yeah. But but I think a a coniferous uh, dark young would be a
0: a really cool variant. Very bristly. Yes. I do want to mention, briefly, another possible indication that it might be a lake entity of some kind, which means it could be a Loigor or it could be freshwater deep ones. Not uncommon in this part of the world. Uh because uh there was another uh, guy named Roy McGregor, who is another one of the Thompson Death Investigator dudes. Uh And he met a guy named Jamie Stringer. And Jamie Stringer was what they call a Bush bachelor. Yeah, I love that term. <laughs> that's the best term ever. Uh, that's like, Canadian uh, for old coot. Uh, yes. Um, so anyway, Bush bachelor Jamie Stringer discovered that Roy McGregor would buy the drinks if they talked about Tom Thompson's death. And so he eventually said, Jamie Stringer is the only one left as knows where the real grave is. And so there, that's your, that's your big thing. And we're going to get back together next summer and we're going to go together and we're going to dig up that grave. And this was in, um, I want to say 1973 that this is going on or it's in the seventies. And so sure enough, Jamie Stringer is out walking across the frozen surface of canoe lake in April nineteen uh, April of whatever year it is. And he falls through the ice and is never seen again. But his tobacco pouch bobs to the surface as mute evidence of his disappearance. So we've got another mysterious death right. of an elderly and, drunk.
1: And, and I don't want to ruin the ghost story, but Stringer is also responsible for saying there's a ghost. So that, that might have been, you know, the, the first few beers.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. If, if people keep buying you drinks, you've got to keep coming up with new stuff. It's exactly. like having a podcast.
1: Um, and uh, finally, though, as, as a romantic uh, Canadian, I would like to also think that perhaps... Uh, tom thompson had sort of with the waters of lake uh, canoe or canoe lake uh, lapping against his canoe that he he briefly drowsed off uh, when the migo came for him or the Loigor or whatever it was so that he was dreaming when he died and therefore uh, he uh, transmigrated into the dreamlands uh, where he is uh, paddling a limpid lake today and uh, as he uh, paddles by the dreamlands become more and more forested and boreal wherever he goes
0: now as a as a as a patriotic canadian and as the author of dreamhounds of paris do you have a stretch of the dreamlands that dream investigators should go looking for the shade of tom thompson
1: well i, I would just go anywhere where the uh, where the forests get uh, deeper and deeper and uh you know a, a, and again it's sort of a more uh, boreal landscape than you would normally associate with the dreamlands and uh, perhaps if you find a a stubby old style Canadian beer bottle. You know that you're uh, headed to the right place.
0: Right. Um, the possibility of maybe the upper stretches of the Ukranos River or the sc- the sky. I think is a little southy, but I'll bet the Ucranos is up is northy.
1: Well, you know the, the dreamland shifts. Yeah, they do. It uh, it uh, it shifts, especially with great when great artists arrive.
0: So. They do. Um, or maybe he's on the um, uh, dreamland's moon that's got forests. That's like Canada. Uh, there you go. Yes, it's like. You can see it from the from the important part, but there it is up there, and maybe cats go there.
1: Yes, and and unlike actual Canadians, uh, moonbeasts do say a boot.
0: They do, they do say a boot. That's how you can tell that it's a moonbeast that is a boot.
1: Uh, well, uh, before we go much further into the uh, Canadianism of the beast, it's time to move along to our next exciting segment. Move along. What happens when your steampunk
0: RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at Drive-Thru RPG. That must mean that all
1: three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X.
0: Logically related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget that's F E N I X. And remember that's in English,
1: not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon
0: backers, exactly like Chris McLaren, Rich Binhauer, Brendan Power, Jeremy French, and Kevin J Maroney. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Rick asks Ken and Robin, as a gamer geek, if I were to visit your respective cities, what should I go out of my way to see and do? Robin, uh I believe that you are going to begin by boasting about Toronto's endless supply of game cafes, unless I missed my guess.
1: Uh, sure, I'll start there. Um, so Toronto is sort of ground zero for the game cafe movement uh, that is in North America. The Koreans figured it out first. Yeah. And uh, Snakes and Lattes uh, has a couple of locations, both within walking distance of my place. The uh, they have a, a new large uh, location at uh, College and Bathurst. Uh, Where you can get a selection of uh, whatever snacks they can make without having a kitchen. And they have a big, uh, they have a lot of floor space and it's uh, bustling, uh, not just on weekends, but uh, in the evenings on weekdays. It's uh, uh, really busy. It turns out that people in Toronto really want to hang out together and play uh, games, Uh, not just Cards Against Humanity, but uh, you also see uh, people playing family games together or the more complicated uh, German style board games. Uh, so uh, Snakes and Lattes is probably your, your stop for an evening out if you want to uh, play a game and uh, join up with whatever Toronto gamers you've contacted on uh, social media to hang out with for the evening. And uh, there you can begin to explore uh, our exciting uh, craft beer scene, uh, which I'm sure you'll be exploring over a, uh, a number of days. Uh, Ken, is there an equivalent in Chicago? Uh,
0: there is not. There is not a board game bar. There was a brief attempt to establish one called Geek Bar that fell apart uh, for a number of reasons. One being, I think, naivete about how to open a bar in Chicago, and the other one being the standard not enough money reason that most things fall apart for. There is a ongoing uh, attempt, I guess you want to call it, to set up another one called uh, Bonus Round Game Cafe that... Was supposed to open last year and is not yet open because, again, see previous discussion about how to open a bar in Chicago.
1: At, at last count, uh, there were forty game cafes slash taverns or bars that had some sort of a gaming element in here in Toronto.
0: Yeah, there are a number of bars in Chicago that have board games at the bar, but they're not—they are not exclusive game cafes in the snakes and lattes sort of sense that you're talking about.
1: Well, Chicago is a great
0: city. It it is the greatest city in the world, but like many things uh, in this fallen earth, it is not perfect.
1: Well, it's good that you think that. Um, So uh, what about a game store? Is there a great game store in Chicago? Yes,
0: uh, I would recommend uh, any number of game stores. I would personally recommend Dice Dojo up on the uh, far north side. Uh, far north for me. It's not super far north. Eh, it's kind of far north. Um, I would recommend the Dice Dojo, which is a great game store. There is, um, uh, another game store that is closer to me, but I haven't gone to it because of the vagaries of, uh, of Chicago geography and my personal transmigration through it. And there is a, uh, what, what's it called? Cat and Mouse. There's a really good sort of, um, board game store that focuses on, uh, not just our sort of games, but also like, uh, games for kids as well. So if you've got a family, uh, cat and mouse games is great. There's, uh, Chicagoland games. There's a ton of, uh, of really good game stores in the city. And then of course there is games plus in Mount Prospect, which is the granddaddy of Chicagoland game stores. It goes way back to the old days. There's a giant RPG section, uh, miniatures game tables, the whole nine yards. Um, they, uh, have a very, very active, local community, and they are sort of a pilgrimage destination. I mean, we used to sort of plan trips up to Mount Prospect to go to Games Plus and eat at the pretty decent sushi bar that was right around in there. Um, I don't know how the sushi bar is, because I've found much better sushi elsewhere, but Games Plus is still there and still getting it done. And uh, I would recommend Games Plus and Dice Dojo if you're only stopping two places uh, in the city uh, for games to
1: buy. And what's your escape room? Oh, sorry, I guess I should mention the Uh, Toronto equivalent, which would be uh, Meeple Mart. Uh, Toronto uh, had a long wilderness where there wasn't a great game store, but now there is. Uh, It's uh, in Chinatown, so it's downtown. And uh, don't listen to me, just remember uh, how excited John Kavalik was to go in there and drop a whole bunch of money. So uh, they, uh, as you would expect uh, from a well-stocked game store, the focus is on board games, uh, but uh, they have a good uh, RPG section as well. Um, So what's your escape room situation like in Chicago? Are they sprouting up all over like they are?
0: They are indeed. Uh, There are a number of them uh, downtown and in the sort of uh, exciting uh, West Randolph stretch that has been blown up in the last decade or so. Uh, I hear good things about panel Q or panic. Pan IQ, I guess, escape room. And I hear uh, good things about the great escape room because what a great title. But I don't, I don't, I haven't gone to them because I don't usually go to escape rooms.
1: I'm in that same boat, but there, uh, we have escape rooms uh, popping up all over as if they were bubble tea places 12 years ago.
0: Now, I also want to mention the nerdiest thing in Chicago, in my opinion, that I am a huge and giant fan of is the Gun Gonzales collection of antique arms and armor that is at the art Institute of Chicago. And when you walk into that, you are like, well, here is ground zero for the <laughs> list of pole arms in the player's handbook. They have because a whole wing of Bohemian. They've got all of them. They've got your glaive arms and your Vulges and the whole nine yards. And it is, it it's, uh, it, it's like finding a, a holy relic. It's like finding the finger bone of St. Luke to see those pole arms just stretched out and it's a very old collection and the art Institute occasionally gets embarrassed about it and hides it, but they have just taken it back out and put it out again. Uh, when I first moved here, it was uh, sort of in the big uh, corridor that you went from one part of the uh, museum to another part of the museum. And then they went and hid it because people kept liking pole arms and that's uncool in art land, but then they've, they've got them back uh, uh, and they're back in a new sort of area of the museum. But it is, mag- and the Art Institute, of course, is one of the great art museums of the world and well worth seeing just by that. But if you are especially feeling super nerdy, take a little moment and go hang out at the, uh, Arms and Armor collection because it is magnificent.
1: Uh, you've got your weapons and armor in the Art Museum. Uh, we have it in our History and Natural History Museum, the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, which always, which quite often has an, uh, cool blockbuster show. And uh, at the moment, they have uh, a blue whale uh, exhibit as a special thing, which is supposed to be great. But that's where you go not only for your arms and armor, but for uh, your uh, Egyptology or your uh, paleontology. They have really strong uh, collections in in both of those areas. There's a lot of great Asian arts. And uh, they also uh, are more and more doing like a photography exhibit in a particular area. So uh, for your... Uh, general nerd-oriented museum needs. I think the Royal Ontario Museum is a place to go. Um, if you are looking for art, which is what I'm always looking for when I go to a new city, uh, the Art Gallery of Ontario is also uh, quite splendid. And there you will see uh, works by the Group of Seven and Tom Thompson.
0: Ah, a, a lovely callback. Yes, we, we just made them nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That's right. If, if, if uh, by nerdy you mean thing you have heard on the show, that would be a thing to do. Let's see, uh, elsewhere, obviously Chicago is, uh, alive with many, many lovely used bookstores. If you are a, a, uh, not as many as it had before Amazon, uh, sort of, <laughs> sort of changed the market, shall we say for used bookstores, but, uh, still a, a goodly number, the original Powell's of course in Chicago and, uh, lots of other places to uh, pick up, uh, books and comics, uh, third coast comics. Owned by friends of mine, up there convenient to Dice Dojo, so you can make it a, a one-stop shop practically.
1: If you are uh, a food nerd, uh, let's uh, let's close this off with some uh, food recommendations from our respective towns. Uh, if you are looking for uh, a quality fine dining experience, my current favorite restaurant in Toronto is called Campagnolo on Dundas Street. It's uh, uh, Italian. And, uh, order, uh, if you're there once, have the bone marrow appetizer, the, uh, spicy spaghetti with pancetta as your main, and the caramel budino as your, uh, dessert course. And at some other point in your visit, uh, you will have to go to the aforementioned uh, jelly modern donuts mm. uh, on College Street. Uh, that is, uh, if your drug of choice is sugar, uh, these are, they're called donuts, but really there's there's something else. They uh, exist on another plane. I guess the Platonic ideal plane of, of donuts.
0: Tom Thompson in the Dreamlands found the dream of the perfect donut Indeed. and passed it down for some reason to Calgary, where the Jelly Urban Donut was born.
1: And I guess for your uh, a gamer-oriented uh, takeout food, your less expensive. Uh, uh, meal uh, go to smoke's poutine uh, any of our many many smoke's poutine locations and get the pulled pork uh, poutine uh, with uh, gravy uh, cheese and pulled pork on a uh, delicious bed of freshly made french fries uh, so ken what would be your uh, three recommendations for uh, a treat takeout and
0: fine dining uh, the finest of fine dining in chicago is alinea which is one of the ground zeros for the molecular gastronomy movement and is impossible to get into. So if you can get into it, good for you. Um, it's one of those deals. You make your reservation six months ahead of time type deal, but it is, you know, possibly one of the best restaurants in the continent, possibly the best restaurant in the continent. I haven't been able to eat there, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: your favorite place that you do go to,
0: my favorite place that I do go to uh, for fine dining in Chicago. A lot of that is going to depend on what you are aiming for. But for example, I am a big fan of the Chicago Chop House, which is not in the first rank of Chicago Steakhouses, but is the only one that offers you a wet-aged steak. Most of them do dry-aged steak, which are great. This is a wet-aged, which is different. And also... So so
1: Simon and Kat come to Chicago, say they're going to pick up the tab for one meal. That's what you pick.
0: That's what I'm going to pick. Unless we can get into Alinea then. (laughs) Ha ha! There are many other uh, 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 top-notch grade-A places, but Charlie Trotter's, which is the... Uh, multi Michelin star restaurant that I've eaten at, uh, in Chicago is no more because Charlie, uh, retired. Um, the other, uh, the, the sort of the, the treat that we were talking about is, uh, Giordano's stuffed pizza. Uh, that is the Chicago iconic deep dish or stuffed crust pizza. Uh, there are other claimants to the throne, but Giordano's is the one true, and uh, then, of course, you want to have a hot dog. And again, sadly, the original Hot Dogs, which was the greatest hot dog stand in the world, is no more. Because Doug, like Charlie Trotter, decided that he was done standing behind a counter for his living and uh, stopped I'm doing tired it. Tired of being hot. But the uh, other cooks at Hot Dogs have opened their own hot dog establishment called Hot G Dogs, which is in Uptown. And uh, I recommend going there. Uh, Or go to anywhere in Chicago and get a Chicago dog because that itself is a magnificent thing. But the Smokes Poutine of the hot dog world, I think, is hot G-dogs up in Uptown.
1: Uh, And uh, in case there's a Cavalier listening, Jelly Modern Donuts uh, actually started out west, I think, in Calgary. So if you want an Ontario treat, uh, find yourself a butter tart, uh, which was invented in the uh, hometown of uh, my lovely wife, uh, Valerie Barry. And uh, so that's the, the quintessential uh, Canadian treat. Uh, it is uh, basically sort of imagine a tart, which is sort of like a pecan pie, but runnier and doesn't necessarily, may or may not have pecans in it. Uh, and uh, currently, probably the best version of that you can find uh, is in the canteen restaurant uh, on the ground floor of the Tiff Bell Lightbox, our recently constructed uh, beautiful... Uh, palace of cinema. Uh,
0: in the world of donuts, uh, I should mention that although your north side hipsters will swear by glazed and infused, I will tell you, go to Dat Donut on the south side, uh, and you will get donuts the size of your head, and they are magnificent. They are not jelly urban donuts. They were not handed down from the dreamlands by Tom Thompson. These were made on earth by decent God-fearing earthlings, but they are magnificent and well worth uh, an experiential trip. Uh, So Dat Donut on the south side, or if you are going to be all hipster, sure, glazed and infused, that's fine. But if you're doing that, get stands. It's a Los Angeles chain, but it's a a better donut than glazed and infused, and I'll stand by that.
1: Uh, Well, I think it's about time that we stop talking about Chicago, but not necessarily stop talking about Toronto. What? As we take a non-existent expressway through this commercial into our final segment. The skies are dim always
0: since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the Maker Killer.
1: You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sown from the flesh of the Maker of all puppets.
0: Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games, featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya and tons of ready-to-play tales from Kenneth Hite, Aaron Dembo, and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play?
1: Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. Once more, we're meeting with the consulting occultist, but this time he has asked us, uh, uncharacteristically, to rendezvous with him outside of his Edwardian parlor, and in fact, in the uh, deep and bustling heart of a city. On the right, we have a massive, brutalist tower. On the left, we have a, a bustling, lively, street-level uh, scene of uh, people engaging with each other in the city in a spontaneous way that has not at all been centrally planned. Uh, because uh, the consulting occultist has been asked uh, via Tell Me More, which is the feature by which uh, Patreon backers can look at the items that we talk about in Canon Robin Consume Media, which drops every Tuesday, and say, hey, we want to hear more about that. And Michael Grasso and Mark Kevin Hall have teamed up to ask us to put a secret occult history spin on the battle between Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. Uh, You can head to a uh, cinema near you, one that shows great documentaries, and uh, right now see Citizen Jane, Battle for the City, which I uh, caught at TIFF and really loved and uh, therefore uh, mentioned again when it uh, uh, got a theatrical release. And so uh, this is the story of the uh, imperious urban planner Robert Moses, who uh, thought that the thing about cities was that he hadn't reorganized them enough uh, from a big centrally planned, top-down perspective. And uh, that gives him, uh, uh, interestingly, makes him a figure that both the uh, left and right can unite in in booing, And we have uh, Jane Jacobs, the scrappy uh, journalist of uh, City Byways, who uh, uh, sort of through journalism became uh, the uh, expert on what really works in cities, and it's not central planning. Uh, So, uh, Ken, do you want to pick this up and uh, tell uh, people a bit about the the battle for Greenwich Village in which uh, Moses wanted to run uh, an expressway, the Lower Manhattan Expressway, through that uh, iconic neighborhood.
0: Uh, Robert Moses really had a mad on for Greenwich Village. It wasn't just the mid man, the, 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 the lower Manhattan expressway. He began, he, he first met, and I guess the only time he ever actually laid eyes on Jane Jacobs and vice versa was during an earlier battle when Robert Moses wanted to extend Fifth Avenue through Washington Square Park. Um, and he'd been trying that since 1935. And by, uh, the fifties, they almost got it done, except, Jane Jacobs rallied the community and uh, Robert Moses famously thundered. No one, no one opposes this except mothers (laughs) 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 showing the sense of political expediency that got him defeated in the only election he ever tried to run for uh, governor of New York. But thank goodness public relations was not his strong suit, not really his big area. So he, he attempted to obliterate Washington Square Park by extending Fifth Avenue. Then, um, the city was going to rezone, uh, Greenwich Village and destroy it, uh, and build, uh, new housing. And so she went around and discovered the city had Pre-classified that neighborhood of Greenwich Village as blighted, even though they hadn't done any surveys or held any public comment. And when they started holding public hearings, uh, Jane Jacobs had a source in City Hall that would tip her off as to when they were, and then she would bring her legions of mothers to uh, to to the to the fight. And in one case, even storming the stage. And then there yes, was, and the, if they
1: could bring strollers, all the better.
0: That, and then there was the famous lower Manhattan Expressway battle that, uh, was the sort of final, uh, uh, war between the two of them and pretty much wound up destroying, uh, Moses' ability to do anything because he got, uh, Jane Jacobs basically made an ally out of John Lindsay, who would become the reforming mayor of, of New York City. And although Lindsay, being John Lindsay and contemptible, still pr- tried to get the lower Manhattan Expressway built. Uh, she had enough allies within his administration that, uh, it wound up, uh, costing Robert Moses his, uh, plum positions in the New York planning, uh, uh, offices, the various planning offices of New York City. And, uh, he was promised, um, a big role in the, I guess the Trans Long Island Sound Bridge planning. And then they were like, oh, we're not going to build that bridge. So I guess you don't have anything to do, Robert Moses. But that's when he gets sort of pushed out is in the Lindsay era. And Lindsay rises uh, in no small part thanks to his alliance with Jane Jacobs.
1: Right. And Moses believes that the city is a thing that you should uh, cut arteries of highways through. Because the whole point of a city is for people, uh, good people who live outside of cities, to be able to quickly move in and out of them, uh, rather than a place uh, that uh, uh, solid citizens would live. And uh, the rest of the people you have to sort of warehouse in these big uh, uh, towers, which are going to be great because they're very efficient and everybody wants to live in a big tower with a, a common area that nobody cares for outside of it. And he typifies the style of urban planning that led to housing projects all across America, which later had to be demolished, because if you were to make a list of everything that's terrible about a place to live that's going to uh, exacerbate the problems of the people who are uh, have no choice but to live there, you would design that. But now we find ourselves in a world where uh, there are glass uh, tower condos going up everywhere with tiny little spaces. And now uh, rich people are supposed to be penned in them. And I suppose that's an interesting irony. But a lot of these and uh, the
0: sort of Jane Jacobs uh, notion of the organic city has become, as all things become, uh, a plat for a theme park. And so you have Greenwich Village now. Uh, fully gentrified. No one who lived in Greenwich Village in Jane Jacobs time could possibly afford to live there now. Her house that she bought for like, uh, it was $7,500 is something like 77.5 $7. million dollars now. Uh, and it's got, you know, commercial space in it. It's not even a house anymore. So, you know, the, there, there is no solution to the problem of people trying to screw with New York City.
1: Uh, right. And so she, uh, decamped to Toronto where she became a, a uh, a saint or city god, depending on which uh, myth you want to select. Mm-hmm. And there's still uh, shrines to her all around the city in the form of plaques and even like uh, murals and overpasses. And They uh, finally
0: got Jane Jacobs' way in Greenwich Village, it, which took seemingly forever, really. She finally got her way. Yes.
1: So that's the unocculted uh, story. Uh, what is the, uh, I guess we can draw uh, some conclusions already about what the mythic forces at work here are between... Uh, mechanization uh, on the part of uh, the, uh, you know, Moses is, uh, despite his name, not necessarily someone who uh, leads you across the Red Sea, but rather someone who uh, uh, gets a, f- a fleet of automobiles in it, which you can drive across the Red Sea after you pave it, because he was in uh, cahoots with the auto industry. Uh, they were uh, they funneled a lot of money to him over the years, so he's he's Vulcan. He's the uh, god of movement, but also, but it's the it's the metallic movement, the smoke belching movement. He's the, the God of, uh, uh, concrete and, uh, and towering phallic things going up into the sky. Jane Jacobs, on the other hand, I guess is a, uh, her power is the power of the street and the people. And, uh, so she's, uh, you know, she'd be a classic city God, right?
0: Um, Jane Jacobs, I think would be, uh, in a lot of ways, sort of a modernist version of Vesta or Hestia, although she's not a virgin, but she is about home and hearth, right? She's about organic living and how we are supposed to connect with each other and the notion that if we have a functioning society, we don't need any of your fancy expressways. And so if we we're picking Roman gods for her to identify with, she might be a um, uh, a um genus loci of Greenwich a Village. She might be the titular Green Witch. Who can say? Uh, I think that we have to, before we start assigning Roman gods or during, we have to remind ourselves that this is probably all about ley lines and megapolisomancy, and uh, ley lines we've covered. I'm sure before, Uh, and Greenwich Village is built on a different grid from the rest of New York City, which is probably throwing everyone's lay calculations into uh, a hugger-mugger and a confusion. Hence uh, Moses' desire to reconfigure it. Exactly. He wants to sort of straighten everything out and connect all of the lay lines under his power uh, with his ability to control uh, access through the Triborough Bridge. Remember, it's the Triborough Bridge that gives him his fiscal stranglehold on New York City development, and also his political stranglehold on New York City, and it's as long as he controls that bridge that he is able to run New York uh, pretty much as his own fiefdom.
1: Magic comes in threes in the uh, Western European tradition, so if you have three boroughs, you've got lots of power to funnel.
0: Exactly. Um, uh, Especially if they connect uh, Queen's uh, and what was Kings, but is now, uh, Brooklyn and the Bronx. That, that's a powerful bunch of stuff. Megapolisomancy Mac- comes from the Fritz Leiber novel, uh, Our Lady of Darkness, but it is the magic that comes from the, uh, sort of accretion of city power in the sense of the mephitic, electrical, conurbational, concrete, the mass of it. It deforms the magical gravity to create uh, city power. And if you have read, uh, Our Lady of Darkness, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you have not, for goodness sake, rush right off and read Our Lady of Darkness. But the black Pythagoras, uh, the geometer who can control the flow of power up and down the city, is obviously the role that Robert Moses, uh, is, is born to play, uh, in, in this, uh, in, endeavor. We re- remind ourselves that he is a big fan of Le Corbusier, who was, of course, very much influenced by Swiss and French Freemasonry, thanks to uh, the lovely book uh, Le Corbusier and the Occult.
1: Right, and we did a segment on Corbusier as, as an, an occultist. occultist.
0: So Le Corbusier's uh, modernist occult sort of proto uh draws the attention of Robert Moses, who snaffles it up and uses it uh, from his position of power over the the Triborough Bridge to extend his tentacles uh, throughout the city. And I think it's interesting that before he takes over the bridge, He's sort of a b- benevolent city building figure because he uh, builds Jones Beach. He puts in a bunch of parks. The parkways that he builds before he builds the freeways have, um, uh, they're landscaped and they have trees by them. They're the lungs of the city in many ways. Uh, and then he takes over the bridge and then he starts n- knocking down people's neighborhoods and, um, uh, and, and being evil so it may have been the act of taking over the bridge that turns him uh gives him the the full megapolis semantic power and that is what uh, corrupts him because that's what power does right
1: right well also uh, this is a battle between uh between elements this is a battle between the sky and the earth so uh, Corbusier famously flew over Paris and went oh this this is terrible this I, I know that baron Houseman reconfigured it a lot uh during the 19th century but it's not reconfigured not enough. enough it needs to be a a grid pattern. That's what we need. Let's destroy, let's level Paris and make it a grid. And uh, and so uh, Moses, in that uh, spirit, uh, is also the one who's looking down at the. Ma- uh, he sees a city and he sees a map. He sees himself in the godlike uh, view from the sky. And what does a bridge do? Well, it uh, it uh, bridges the sky. And so uh, he was up there, and that's when he was infested with the uh, with the dark power of the sky gods. And then you've got uh, uh, Jane Jacobs down at street level, on the ground, on the on the, sit- on the on the city version of the earth, on the sidewalks, on the pavement, where the people are looking around her at uh, that this is the way the thing to preserve, and uh, and looking up at the uh, threat to build into the sky with these giant uh, uh, skyscrapers and and housing projects. So it's uh, also. Uh, you know, goes back to being a, a battle between uh, elements of uh, of runes. If we're going to make this a Gloranthian story,
0: the other thing that we need to remember about Robert Moses is that although he is a avatar encourager and servant of the automobile, he does not have a driver's license. Right. He is ferried around the city in limousines the whole time. The best car is, is one that somebody else has to drive for you. Uh, the, the, the Wikipedia entry somewhat defensively says, Moses knew how to drive an automobile, but if you're not driving and you are the apostle of the car, then we're talking Unknown Army's contradiction magic is going on. Driving a car must have been his taboo to enable him to control... The, uh, the, the power of the Vulcanian fire uh, within the car and the, um, uh, the, the sky perspective, uh, the Hastorian the, the, the stellar perspective that he has looking down and attempting to erect cold and thoughtless monuments.
1: Well, well, the car is too close to the earth, right? His, his real power is when he's up in an office uh, structure, many, many stories above, able to uh, closer to the sky.
0: And he also, of course, drove the Brooklyn Dodgers out of New York. Addition to everything else that he did, he, uh, tried to move them to Queens in, in Flushing Meadows. Uh, he wanted to build Shea Stadium there. And indeed, he did build Shea Stadium there, but it was not for the Dodgers because they went to Los Angeles. And so it is, uh, Robert Moses' fault that the Brooklyn Dodgers left. Well, they don't call them the Dodgers for nothing. They don't, but they, they dodged that bullet. Those, those of you who have already sussed out the occult significance of the Brooklyn Dodgers will no doubt chalk this up as yet another awful thing about uh, robert moses magic wise and he put the u.n in new york in new york it was not going to be in new york uh it was going to be somewhere else but he made sure that the u.n got turtle bay and was able to uh take over new york city so if you are a alert watcher for the black helicopters of the u.n (laughs) then you know that robert (laughs) moses is on their side too
1: um or or you could argue that he uh he corrupted the purity of the UN by, by putting it there. Yes,
0: that's true. The purity of the UN. Every every document signed by Stalin begins in purity. Yes. Well, I'm sure he had help. Had a guy do it. Right? He had he had Molotov do it, which is a distinction without a difference.
1: Well, if you're going to unite the nations, you got to you got to unite some pretty yeah. bad dudes, some some bad hombres, as, as, we, as say we say now. It. So uh I, have we uh, have we left uh any of this uh, great uh, magical battle unlimbed?
0: Um I guess you would maybe uh, do you have any other uh, specifics about Jane Jacobs's uh magic powers that we have not covered? We've sort of been leaning on Robert Moses pretty heavily because uh, you know, he's the Antichrist. He was born, I swear to God, in Babylon Township, Long Island. Do you know where the Antichrist is going to be born? Babylon. I don't look, I don't make this up. I report, you decide.
1: Well, I, I can tell you that, uh, like a true iconic hero, uh, Jane Jacobs had serialized adventures. So, uh, in uh, the late sixties, even as the final uh, battle of Robert Moses is going on and she's been charged with inciting a riot, uh, and, uh, eventually that gets, uh, knocked down to mere disorderly conduct, but she's, at that point, for her trial, uh, she's commuting from her new home in Toronto, and she is tired of the battles. She's uh, she's the true, uh, really is a reluctant hero here, because she arrives and finds that there's yet another highway monster that's about to arise, another uh, a concrete world serpent, uh, as it were, uh, another uh, expression uh, the uh, the corrupted earth, right? The the highway is uh, is a corrupted earth, and uh, what Moses was going to do in uh, New York and run a highway right down the wife uh, uh, blood of Greenwich Village. City planners here were going to drive a highway tr- like a spike through the heart of Toronto down uh, uh, Spadina. It's called the Spadina Expressway, and so immediately the reluctant hero had to answer the call and uh and fight that battle as well and so the, uh, where the Spadina expressway uh, which really would have choked the city would have uh, stood there's now a, a plaque to, to Jane Jacobs so uh her adventures continued and she lived uh, essentially in my neighborhood uh, until her uh until her death in 2006 uh and so uh the the earth spirit of of Jane Jacobs uh uh continues to uh protect the city but unfortunately as as mentioned earlier the sky towers are back. They look even more like the sky than they uh, would have uh, in Robert Moses' day, now that they're all uh, covered in glass and they're reflecting the sky. Or are they, uh, you know, trapping it and uh, and uh, holding its its power hostage? So. Uh,
0: and you know who likes a mirror? Tez Just saying. Human sacrifice altars, giant pyramids. Uh, right. Stay woke, and, head on a swivel.
1: Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of money laundering involved in the uh, sale and flipping of uh, uh, condos. Uh, it's As in Vancouver, our housing market has become a uh, place to move money around. And so uh, there's uh, the government has just put in a, the provincial government has put in a tax to try and uh, crack down on that. But definitely, if you're uh, into human sacrifice and you have a lot of money that you want to move out of Central America, uh, I'm just saying. There are uh, worse
0: places than Toronto. Great donuts.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so uh, when you uh, when you come to Toronto to meet all of those uh, little geek things, just keep an eye out out of the corner of your eye and see if you see the mysterious shade of uh, Jane Jacobs. Uh, uh, maybe the shade of Tom Thompson is going to come down to the city uh, to uh, uh, visit her as well if we're going to wrap things uh, together. And uh, once we're wrapping things together, Ken, you know what time it is.
0: It's time to engage in the ballet of the sidewalk on out of Here.
1: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software.
0: Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Paddle a spectral canoe alongside such patrons as Mark Giles, Ollie Toiven, Paul Stefko, Pedro Garcia, and Stephen Hammond. Snag Ken
1: and Robin apparel and other erudite
0: merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash canrobin. On Twitter, he's at Kennethite, and he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once
1: again we will talk about stuff.